0: Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8, we'll be there for a bit, but if I was going to title this teaching, uh, I would, I'm calling it Fightin' Words, which is not up there, but I'm sure it will be, Fightin' Words. Um, you could also call it Words Against Temptation. This is really a part two to last week's teaching, and the two I, I realized go hand in hand, really go together. Last week's teaching was Words of Utter Destruction, where we talked about In our lives, just taking down sin partially is not enough. And just battling those things of the flesh a bit or till we're satisfied that we have some kind of control, it's not enough. We're called to utter destruction. And this week, I would call it words against temptation or uh, words, fighting words. The thing is, we can talk about utter destruction all we want, but the temptation's still out there. What do we do with that? How do we deal with that? How do we handle that? And I found it odd as I started my study thinking, I'm a long-time Christian, Lord. Uh, temptation's still a thing, don't get me wrong, but, but there are a lot of people here who have been long-time believers and faithful Bible students, and how, how relevant is a teaching on temptation? And the more I studied, the more relevant it became. So I, I hope you'll see that this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Deuteronomy 8, 3, he humbled you, Moses said, and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Look back at verse 13. You shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. Now go back to Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three. And picking up with man does not live by bread alone, I'd like you to read that aloud with me. Let's do this together, ready? Man does not live by bread alone but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That was pretty good. It was a little weak, but uh, I think he got that. Verse 16 of chapter 6, go back there. Repeat that. Say this with me. Here we go. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And verse 13, you shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. Father, as we consider these things this morning, I just ask that you will feed our spirits. The spirit man, the spirit woman, where the strength is, where the power is, where the ability to stand against temptation truly resides, I pray that you would feed and strengthen and build up our spiritual selves, in Jesus' name, amen. Controversial poet and author, uh, Oscar Wilde. And he was. He said, I can resist anything except temptation. (laughs) More tragically, he said, the only way to overcome temptation is to yield to it. James chapter 1 verse 12 says, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Paul also wrote, or Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10:13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter four, and that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. Matthew chapter four. There are a couple of questions that stand out as we begin to read and think through this idea of temptation in the scriptures and what it, what it truly means in our lives, how we deal with these things and what the Bible has to say about it. And I remind you again that in the book of James, it says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Yet in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. A couple of questions that emerge, uncomfortable questions that arise, and I've heard all kinds of discussion and debate about it, really, over many, many years, as we compare these passages, if God does not tempt anyone, how can it say the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness for that very purpose? To be tempted. And secondly, if God cannot be tempted by evil, and if Jesus really was God in the flesh, was Jesus really actually tempted? And these questions just kind of hang out there on the periphery, on the fringe, until a cynic or a critic wants to throw it at a Christian or until one of us is brave enough to ask either one of those. So we best get a couple of uh, definitions straight. First of all, the word entice. When Jacob is actually his name, in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 14, when Jacob says when each one is tempted, he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. What is that word enticed? It's dilazo, and it simply means to lure or beguiled by deceit. To be enticed is to be lured or beguiled by deceit. So someone's trying to draw you into something without you really knowing what you're being drawn into. This is, this is what Satan does. It's what the devil does. Make it look good, make it look other than what it is, and try to entice you. So the word enticed, dilazo. The word tempt used throughout the New Testament scriptures in the Greek is pyrazzo Pyrazzo is not a grilled Italian sandwich. Pyrazzo is, in its fuller definition, uh, it, it's, it means lust to sin or to test or prove one's character and or strength of faith. Okay, so carried away and enticed by lust to sin, or testing of character or strength of faith. But here's what's important. That word pyrazzo, temptation, tempt, to be tempted, all of it is never used to describe God testing a believer. It's never used for that. Because the Bible tells us very clearly, God does not pyrazo, God does not test, God does not tempt anyone. Now he will prove you, he will try you, But it's never with that aspect of enticing of being beguiled by deceit to lure you into a situation just to see if you can handle it. You know, he's not one of these gods who toys with people. God will never tempt. And the word again is never used for God tempting or testing a believer. Closest we get to it in all the New Testament is this. Revelation chapter 2 verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, Pirazzo, and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. But even there, the testing is by the devil. It is not by God. He went after Jesus in the flesh, the devil did, with every possible lure in the book to entice the man, the man Jesus Christ. And the Lord allowed it. And the Lord actually led Jesus into the wilderness to position him for it. God didn't do the testing. The devil did. Now, you might say, oh, you're splitting hairs, Rick. If God led him into the position to be tempted, come on, then he's culpable, right? He's responsible, right? Hold on. Let me preach. Stop interrupting me. He went after Jesus in the flesh. Yes, and God allowed it. Why? To prove the character of Christ, the Son of God. And, and to verify the integrity of Jesus, the Son of Man. This is so important. It's absolutely crucial to our faith. In Jesus, we see Christ, the Son of God. And we see Jesus, the Son of Man, in the same person. We see the perfect representation of God in Jesus. Let me just clarify these things. The perfect representation of God. So when you look at Jesus, you are looking at God. When you watch what Jesus does, you're seeing what God does. When you listen to what Jesus says, you're hearing what God says. When you are privy to what Jesus is thinking, you are privy to what God is thinking. So he is the Perfect representation of God. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. John 1.18. Hebrews 1.3. He, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory. The exact representation of his nature. God's nature. However, while we see the perfect representation of God in Jesus, we also see the perfect relationship to God in Jesus. Son of man. We see him as God in the flesh, but we also see him as man as unto God, which is so important to understand. You want to know how you are to be toward the Father? Be like Jesus. You want to know how the Father is toward you? Look at Jesus, because he shows us both. As a human in flesh, he exemplifies and he embodies our relationships to God the Father, even even to the point of temptation. And this is where it gets really, really cool. This whole idea of spiritual warfare and what we talk about, we get to see an exact example of how it plays out. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, not as the devil thought, to be enticed to sin, but as God intended that he, Jesus, would be a proven Savior. Matthew, Mark, Luke all refer to, all talk about, all mention the temptation of Jesus. Why? So that we could look at Jesus in that setting and see Him proven as our Savior and see Him solid as the one in whom we put our trust. We see Him and we know that He holds up, that He is a rock. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. We can look at Jesus and say, he knows what I go through. He gets it. He understands, and he is solid that I can trust him. Understand this. Jesus didn't go into the wilderness to be tested, tempted, pirazzoed by the devil to prove himself to God or even to prove himself to himself. No, it was to prove himself to you and to me, to prove himself to us. For we do not have a high priest, Hebrews 4, 15, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now, some will hear that, and they'll say, I don't like very much that Jesus could be tempted. I don't like that idea. I'm sorry, but I don't remember God asking your opinion. Or mine. But, but, but Rick, doesn't the Bible say that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever? Yes, sinless yesterday, sinless today, and sinless forever. Don't think that because someone can be tempted that they have a propensity to sin. The temptation is just the lure. You know, it's, it's out. It's, it's a separate thing. Jesus is absolutely compassionate. To our trials and to our temptations, it doesn't mean he was apt to a particular sin. The word simply describes the lure or the test itself. He was tested and proven faithful. And just because you're tempted doesn't mean the precise temptation is a big sin issue of yours. It may not be at all. Or it may be. But with Jesus, we see him proven Jesus said in John 14 30, I will not speak much more with you to the disciples for the ruler of the world is coming. And I love this line and he has nothing in me. He has nothing in me, but so that the world may know that I love the father. I do exactly as the father commanded me. And not only did Satan have nothing on Jesus, he has nothing in Jesus. Jesus says he has nothing in me. Hebrews seven twenty six. for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So back to the question, was Jesus actually tempted or not? Let me answer it this way. The testing of Jesus, the tempting of Jesus, pirazzo, same word that can mean a, a test or attempt. It can mean a lure to sin. It can also be a testing to prove character. And in that way, yes, Jesus was tested to prove character and yet sinless. And the testing of Jesus Christ was far greater than any trials, temptations, or tests that any of us will ever face. What he went through, even simply in his ministry, the warfare was nonstop, the warfare was constant from the wilderness. Facing off with the devil to the garden of Gethsemane. Have you ever sweat blood? Have you ever sweat blood? I'd like to see a show of hands of, of people who have sweat blood. That's the length to which Jesus was tested. And you have never been tested that way. Hebrews twelve four. you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And so the point of all that is just to say that Jesus stood the tests of his times, proving beyond a doubt that he could not and would not collapse. And I like what Spurgeon has to say about this. He says, the Savior's public life begins and ends with temptation. It commences in the wilderness in a close contest with satanic craft. It ends in Gethsemane in a dreadful affray with the powers of darkness. There are a few bright spots between, but the gloom of the desert deepens into the midnight darkness of the cross as if to show us that we also must begin with trial and we must reckon upon ending with it. Hey, there's a cheery thought this morning that the moment you give your life to Christ, the trials will begin. And there are bright spots of glory all throughout. But don't think that 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the line of walking with Jesus that you are now free from the trials. Or that the devil is done coming after you. Or that you now will reach a point. This is one of the biggest misnomers in all of Christian faith that I will become a Christian and ultimately be sanctified to the point where I'm cool. Everything's good. I'm solid. I won't be tempted again. There's only one way you won't be tempted again. You've got to die. And I'm not talking about just dying to yourself. You die to yourself, the temptations are still there. I'm talking about dead. Dead or raptured is the only way sin will end, or at least the temptations and the tests will end in our lives. But we have a proven Savior. We have a rock-solid Jesus. We have one who has been shown to be true and trustworthy, one in whom we can put our confidence strong to stand and strong to fight for us and with us. So when we talk about spiritual warfare, you're not going in alone. You're going in with the greatest warrior the the world has ever seen. You're going in to, you know what? You're not even really even going in to fight. You're going in to stand behind the one who's fighting. Be still, bow down, shut up, be quiet. Let the Lord fight. Put your trust and your faith in him. So all that's introduction. I want to take the pirazzo of Jesus in the wilderness as the model for our battles and how to fight. See, this even hit me this morning before or after all the, the study and everything, he's given us exactly what we need in the scriptures, right? For all godliness. And here in the story of the temptation of Jesus, Matthew chapter four, and Luke four and Mark one. where where it's referred to and talked about, there may have been other things that took place, other statements made between Jesus and the devil in the desert. There may have been other challenges, other tests that Jesus went through. May have, I'm not saying there were, I don't know. I wasn't there, neither were you. But God, with his intentional word, has given us three specific tests. Why? And three specific responses of Jesus. Why? because they have such immediate practical application to our fighting the battle. We learn from Jesus these fighting words, if you will. Fighting words as operative weapons against our own temptations. So this is wholly practical this morning such that it really excites me to share with you. Spurgeon also wisely said, if you will study the temptation of Christ, you will not be ignorant of Satan's devices. If you see how he worsted the enemy, you will learn what weapons to use against your great adversary. So by simply looking at the temptation of Jesus, everybody gets drawn into the debate and the discussion about, could he be tempted? And what was going on with Jesus? And the Lord's saying, look, Jesus is fine. I'm concerned for you. And you need to study this and look at this so you know how to stand in the way that Jesus is. Knew how to stand. So look at it, Matthew chapter four, verse one. Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And I read that and go, then? And I'm hungry after half an hour. He became hungry after 40 days and 40 nights. In the first 72 hours of a fast, the hunger can be intense. I've done a few of them over the years. You know, we always did the 30-hour the famine for World Vision when I was in youth ministry. That was a thing, and, and us youth pastors had to, had to starve ourselves for 30 hours with a group of teenagers to try and, you know, raise awareness of World Vision. I hated it. I'd always go out for donuts the next morning. Anyway. <laughs> The first 72 hours, it, it, it is hard. If you go, just go a day without food, and you're, you're gonna feel your stomach rumbling, and you'll feel a little bit weakness. You're like, man, I just, you know, every time you drive by a burger joint, you're just going, talk about Pirazo. <laughs> After about the fourth or fifth day, for those of you who have fasted longer periods of time, you know this, about day four or five, the hunger fades away. You, you actually get to a point where you're just really not that hungry. And a person usually won't even feel hungry again until around day 35 or 40. That's when starvation sets in. That's when the body starts to turn on itself and eat the, basically feed on the vital organs as a source of fuel. And when you get that far into a fast, people usually die. Usually they die. It's really hard to turn it around after about 38, 39 40 days, Matthew says, note this, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry, the hunger came back, and that's a bad sign, that's a really bad sign, that means Jesus was in dire straits physically, but the hung- and both Matthew and Luke mentioned that, the hunger returned, so Jesus weakened in the flesh, the hunger comes back, death is imminent, my friends, I don't know if you thought about or if you have thought about how many times Jesus almost died before the cross. And by the way, that's when the devil showed up. What a bully. See, that's what he does. When you are weak in the flesh, he's going to show up. That's when he likes to attack. Always does in our weakness. But listen, here's something that's good to know. He always confuses true weakness. That's a problem that the devil seems to have. And I can even say this out loud because he's still not going to figure it out. And I, don't, I don't mean that as an offense in the spiritual realm. I'm just saying that he thinks that physical weakness is the most important place to get you. Because he doesn't think deeper than that. I'll explain. Jesus did the same thing as Moses. In the wilderness... 40 days and 40 nights. And we studied this on Wednesday night. Moses was reminded the people that twice he was up on the mountain, 40 days and 40 nights, both times fasting before the Lord. Both times Moses was doing the same as Jesus. Moses wasn't eating either. Both Moses and Jesus fasted from the flesh for 40 days and 40 nights. And both Moses and Jesus feasted on the word for 40 days and 40 nights. John chapter 6, verse 63, Jake already mentioned this, it is the spirit who gives life. Jesus said, the flesh profits nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. And the devil attacks because Jesus is weak in the flesh, not recognizing Jesus is strong in the spirit. Jesus has spent this time in the word feeding on the Word of God, aware of the Word of God, walking in the truths of the Lord. Listen, get this down. You can maintain an intensive workout schedule. You can eat all the best organic foods. You can take all the right herbs and supplements. It is not worth jack against temptation. You can make your body strong. Doesn't matter. You will never fight temptation that way but to feed on the word of God, Mm -hmm. to pray in the spirit. These are key. These will make you a spiritual giant. And these are our only offensive weapons, by the way, against temptation and spiritual warfare. Do you realize that? We have two weapons, two weapons, and that's it. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul runs down the list. We've read it before. He talks about these great armaments that we can wear, that we can put on, as it were, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, all of these excellent defensive, protective, spiritual gear. But Ephesians six seventeen says, and take the sword of the Spirit, That's not just defensive. That's what we use to go on the offense. Take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Do you ever feel like you're on the defensive against the devil? Think about that, that it's all coming down against you and like, man, you're just trying to hold ground. You're just trying to survive for a season. Maybe it's because we spend too much time taking a defensive stance. If we knew how to rightly handle the word of truth, if we prayed in the spirit, maybe we would be more on the offensive as the church in this world. But you know what, if, if, if you don't know the word, some might say, well, I, I'm new to this and there's so much to know. Just start knowing it. <laughs> oh, I can't memorize all the Bible. Can you memorize one verse? Well, I don't know how it all works. Can you show up to Bible study? Can you just read it? You know, we have the sense we've got to grasp the whole thing right now. No, God doesn't want you to grasp it all right now. Part of the reason we have 66 books in the Bible, one revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, part of the reason that we have 66 books is so that we will walk with God for a long time. And he builds and he builds and he builds. It is bodybuilding, spiritual bodybuilding as we we feed on the word through our lives. But if we refuse to depend on the word, if we refuse the Holy Spirit of the living God through prayer and petition and listening, At best, we will always be on the defensive. We can only defend against temptation. But we have offensive weapons to which we can shout, charge, we have weapons, we have anti-temptation guns. (laughs) The word of God and the Holy Spirit, to whom and through whom and by whom we pray. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, we read this last week. I read it to you again. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not warfare, are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And Paul explains, we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Man, that's a fighter right there. Someone who's feeding on the word of God, who's praying in the spirit, who's taking every thought obedient to Jesus, doing as the word says. And then we become become these warriors in spiritual warfare, not by the flesh, not by the soul, but by the spirit. Jesus was physically as weak as a man could be, but spiritually, he was ready to rumble. He was ready to take on anything that was thrown his way, spiritually, spiritually. In fact, Luke chapter 4 verse 1 tells us Jesus full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. That's incredibly significant. Luke is big on the Spirit of God. Because Luke was around during the early days of the church, writing the book of Luke and writing Acts and following Paul around and seeing the work of the Spirit alive and at work in the world. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is as busy today and is at work in the world and in believers now as he was then. And if you disagree with me, read the Bible and show me where in the Bible it tells us that he's no longer at work. See, I grew up with the notion that the Holy Spirit is at work in teaching us the Word, and that is it. And you know what? That's why so many in the church are fighting a defensive battle. Because we really think that there's a limit there to what the Spirit of God is able to do in us and through us. And I see nowhere in Scripture that says he shut it all down after the last of the apostles. Now, you can argue with me on that, and that's okay. You're always welcome to have a wrong opinion. I'm not going to judge you for it. Jesus was spiritually ready. He was spiritually strong. He was next to death physically. But in spirit, he was ready to fight. And this is what I meant when I said the devil is confused where weakness is concerned. Satan goes after the natural man. That's, that's his inroad. And he'll entice the soulish man. More on that in a second. Because in the natural man and in the soulish man, my my intellect, my thoughts, that's where I'm the weakest. You might say, we agree, Rick. Thanks a lot for that. (laughs) That's where we're all the weakest in our physical self. Greatest bodybuilder in the world can still fall prey to cancer and die. The the greatest mind in the world can still be outthought. And besides the fact, when it comes to the greatest minds in the world, pride tends to, you know, knowledge puffs up. But that's where Satan fights. He goes after the natural man. He entices the soulish man because that's where our weakness is. And so Jesus, in this temptation, we're going to get there, don't worry. In the temptations that we see come at him in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus fights as a spiritual man. And that's huge. Just even that realization. This is a spiritual battle that he engages against the devil. And so for you and for me, an example of how to fight the spiritual battle against temptation. Check it out. Jesus, the spiritual man. Verse three, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Remember the hunger had just returned. And so Satan's attack from the satanic perspective is feed the flesh. Feed the flesh. Here's the first temptation. Jesus, just feed the flesh. Got to keep your strength up, man. You got to do naturally what's best for you here. Feed the flesh. And we're really big on this in the Pacific Northwest. I'm not talking just about feeding the flesh. I'm talking about how big we are on everything being organic and natural. And that's fine for a healthy body. There's a big focus on that, more here than there before. You know, Southern California, my focus growing up was In-N-Out Burger. (laughs) So I come up here and people are telling me about vegan diets and natural juices, and I'm going, what? Where's the cheese, you know? It's a good thing, it's healthy, it's right for our bodies to do that. So so I'm not denigrating the example or, or the idea of trying to be healthy. In fact, it's, it's primarily how we roll at my house, mostly. But at the end of the day, it's still flesh. You're still just feeding flesh. On balance, let me ask you this, and, and please ask yourself this question personally. On balance, how much feeding does my spirit get? Sunday morning? Sunday and maybe a Wednesday on occasion? Well, I have my Bible by my bed at night. I read it occasionally. On balance, how much feeding does your natural self get? Three squares a day plus snacks? I don't know. I mean, how much focus does your flesh get throughout your week? How much attention versus your spirit? Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. And so with crystal clear focus, Jesus responds to this demonic lure, this demonic temptation, hey, just, just command these stones to become bread. And with crystal clear focus, Jesus says, verse four, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, Deuteronomy 8.3, them's fighting words. That's the right response to the lure of the flesh. That is the offensive response to that old and yet tragically effective feed the flesh attack. You can almost hear the sword come unsheathed as Jesus said, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How blessed. Psalm 1 verse 1, is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, in his law, he meditates day and night. Or Psalm 119, 111, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. First tack, the first offensive stance against temptation is Feeding on the word of God. It's interesting to me that he says, if you are the son of God, command these stones become bread. So he's even questioning Jesus' very identity. It's almost as if Jesus doesn't even hear it. Because Jesus, in, in a human example, shows us, look, my identity's not the issue. God's word is the issue. Now, Jesus' identity obviously is the issue for us because he is God in the flesh he is son of God but he didn't even have to answer that one he knew who he was but the focus was on the word fighting back with the word so the devil takes another tack verse 5 the devil took him into the holy city had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple the pinnacle is probably probably the southwest corner of the temple so if you were in Israel today, you know that's, that's above that great area, that pavilion area, the, the western wall is down a ways and, and it's a huge area, a lot of activity, a lot of people, a lot of busyness and Satan takes Jesus right up there where all the people may be right there down below. And he said to him, if you are son of God, throw yourself down for it is written he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So that, this is easy, Jesus. If you are, he, he repeats it again. He didn't even say if you are the son of God. He says if you are son of God, implying a son of God, a holy guy, Satan knows who he is. But he keeps coming after this identity. He will come after your spiritual identity. And if your identity is flesh, if your identity is soul, You're going to have some trouble with that. What do you mean? If your identity is flesh, how together you are physically. If your identity is soul, as a Christian, what tradition or denomination you subscribe to? That's soul, my friends. And if that's where your identity is, you're going to have some trouble in the spiritual battle. Is your identity with the Spirit? You know, see, we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit unto salvation. Is your identity spiritual. Well, he comes after him and he says this, he'll command his angels concerning you, you know, if you're son of God, on their hands they'll bear you up so you'll not strike your foot against a stone. Satan knows the Bible well. And we've talked about this before and I'm sure you've heard that preach, that Satan knows the Bible. Of course he does. He knows it well enough to twist it. He knows it well enough to drop words or throw shade on its literal meaning. So don't think that he doesn't know the word. He has used the word over 2,000 years, more than that, to confuse people by misquoting it, by misdirecting it, by pulling verses out of context. Psalm 91 reads, and note this, you read read uh, read verse 6 to yourself and listen to what Psalm 91 actually says. It's very subtle. Psalm 91 verse 11 says, he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Did you see what he left out? I I raised my voice a bit. To guard you in all your ways. Satan didn't mention that one, didn't say anything about that. Guess what? In all Jesus' ways included the wilderness. Jesus was in the way. He he was walking the way in the wilderness. He'll guard you in all your ways, even during temptation. That's, That's kind of the idea. No matter where you are, what you're doing, what's going on, he'll guard you. But the devil omits that. Why? Because he's enticing Jesus to satisfy the soul. That's number two. Feed the flesh, satisfy the soul. And the attack comes on. And you might ask the question, okay, why does this satisfy the soul? Him saying, throw yourself down. Take a flying leap off the pinnacle of the temple. Jump, Jesus. Why would that satisfy the soul? Because it would be a messianic miracle. would be awesome. I mean, think about that. You know who you are. You know the power that you have in in the Lord, by the Spirit, you're standing up on the pinnacle of the temple. You're Messiah. And all you got to do is take a jump and have the angels catch you and waft you down in the midst of all the people. Boom. Messiah's here. Did you see that? Did you, did you see me? Come down. Me. I mean, does it, is, are you guys missing this? How amazing that would be. Uh, you know, we could give it a try. Go on an Israel trip, go up to the Temple mountain and, and maybe choose someone to jump off, see what happens. You know We would have a splat. We're talking about Messiah here. What a great ad campaign. Hey, this is one about whom Psalm 91 is written. "Hey, this is Messiah. Quick leap off the temple. Angels bear you down to the street. And Malachi 3:1 tells us, "Behold, I'm going to send my messenger." John the Baptist, he will clear the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Take a leap, Jesus. This is a great way to go about it. What are you doing in the wilderness? Think about that. He gets baptized, right? Heaven's open. Holy Spirit descends upon him as a dove. You hear the voice of God saying, This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. From there, the ag campaign should follow that you go straight to Jerusalem, up to the temple, and you jump off and come floating down. Messiah's here, hallelujah, crown him king. But instead, baptism of Jesus, that glorious, bright moment, and he's in the wilderness, isolated, nobody else there, being tested and tempted. By the devil. What are you doing, the devil might say. There's a more effective approach. If you are who you say you are, if you're son of God, do something big. And that is the attitude of the soulish Christian. The Christian who thinks in terms of, not with the mind of Christ, that's a spiritual Christian. The soulish Christian is trying to figure it out. The soulless Christian functions by strategy, methodology, procedures, plans, programs. It's what happened in the church in the 90s when the purpose-driven church came out, the whole Rick Warren movement, and he wrote the book Purpose-Driven Church, and then ultimately Purpose-Driven Life, and in the purpose-driven church, churches across the nation went after it. This is great. We now have a strategy for how we're supposed to be. I thought we have had one for 2,000 years. Don't we have a strategy? (laughs) And I talk about this because I was caught up in it, big time, as a youth pastor. I picked up the purpose-driven youth ministry, you know? And our church, churches everywhere, grabbed hold of this idea of the five purposes of the church and began to strategize and take, you know, Rick Warren had five words that he used at Saddleback Church and all the other churches throughout America, especially, began coming up with their own five words. And that's our mission statement. No, it's not your mission statement. It's Warren's mission statement, and you're just borrowing it because you don't know what to do with yourselves. Why don't we know what to do with ourselves? Because we're soul men and soul women. Because too much of our Christian lives are spent in the soul. And the soul wants a strategy. And the soul wants a plan. The soul wants to think it through and write it out and make sure we've, we know exactly what we're doing. And the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 16, 9. I advise you to pick up a book. It's a thick book by a guy named Watchman Nee. N-E-E, Watchman Nee. Chinese Christian, prolific uh, pastor, writer. Spent the last 20 years of his life in prison died in a Chinese prison for his faith. Watchman Nee has a book called The Spiritual Man, and it will blow your mind. And the only reason I recommend it is because with everything Watchman Nee says in the book, he has scripture. Scripture, scripture, scripture. So you read what he says, and I've read it, and there are a few times where I would go, <laughs> no, I don't know about that. And then you'd go to the Bible and go, oh, yeah, that's right. So it's a very biblical book, but it's called The Spiritual Man. And and it's, well, I, I, I could say so much about it. Let me just give you one quote, one tiny little quote. This is from page 171 of The Spiritual Man. He says, the soulish are second to none in matter of works. They are most active, zealous, and willing. They do not labor because they have received God's order. No, they labor instead because they have zeal and the capacity to do so. You know those. They drive you nuts. They're the go-getters. They're the hard-working Christians. They make the rest of us look pretty shameful in terms of our behavior and involvement. You know, they're the ones in, in, in 27 ministries. And they're just eating it up. These individuals have neither the heart to trust nor the time to wait. They never sincerely seek the will of God. On the contrary, they labor according to their ideas with a mind teeming with schemes and plans the soulish man or woman will come in here on a Sunday morning sit down look around and say all y'all aren't doing anything I've heard that before I love when people say that no one in our church does anything I'm like are you involved in every person's life in our church are you there how do you know I see you on Sunday morning sitting there Well, this is not a good representation of what we're doing for the Lord through the week. This is just training. This is just seminar, you know? You look at someone sitting in one of these padded chairs, of course you don't look like you're doing anything. You're just sitting there listening to a guy. What's happening through the week? You know what? And I absolutely believe this. You all are active. You all are moving in the Spirit. You all, having fed on the Word, are doing everything the Lord calls you to do. I don't sit here with the assumption that you're not doing enough. This church, that church, the other church, they just don't know. Nobody does anything. That's the soul man. Because the soul man wants it all to be about busyness and involvement. And you know what? Hey, the soul man loves Jesus. We're not not questioning Christianity here. The, The soul man, the soulish follower, he loves the Lord. She loves the Lord but they're stuck in the brain. They're stuck in the strategies rather than like, like I mean, it was, it was a perfect final chorus to sing right before we began. All I did was stay still. All I did was bow down. See the spiritual person, and I'm way off note here, but that's okay. The spiritual person is the one To whom the Lord says, you you, you fed me when I was hungry, and you clothed me when I was naked. You visited me in prison. You you took care of me when I was sick. And the spiritual follower says, when did I do that? I, I don't, really? I did? All I did was stay still. All I did was bow down. All I did was worship. The soul man is going, oh, yeah, I did that and so much more. Here's my list. Satisfy the soul, Satan says. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, how does that answer this soul temptation? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That comes from Deuteronomy 6, 16, and the latter part of that verse reads, as you tested him at Massah. So what did that look like? Well, so we go all the way back to Exodus 17, verse 7. He named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel because they tested the Lord. Listen, listen. They tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? That was the test. Very interesting because in that moment in Israel's history, it wasn't just about quarreling and grumbling that they were thirsty. It was the people who were saying, is the Lord among us or not? Were you at the Red Sea? Were you not just delivered days before? Did you miss the 10 plagues? Is the Lord among us or not? They wanted another miracle. They wanted to see more proof. Listen, proof by experience instead of trust in a faithful God. The Greek phrase put to the test, by the way, is ek So ek is put and parazo. Put to temptation, put to the test. And this is another nuance of temptation. It's testing, testing to prove yourself worthy to the tester. Meaning what? It's Israel testing the Lord to prove himself worthy to them. Is the Lord among us or not? Israel basically hands God their own SAT, supernatural aptitude test. Is he, is he here? The Hebrew back in Deuteronomy 6.16 for put to the test is tenashu which means prove yourself to us. Prove yourself to us. Now I'm sure none of you have ever asked God to prove himself to you. Matthew 16 verse 1 the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus. Testing Jesus. Pyrazzo Jesus. So here's another temptation. Of Jesus. They go after him and they ask him to show them a sign from heaven. Which <laughs> just cracks me up. How many signs had he done? <laughs> what about all the miracles? You missed those, apparently. Guy with a lame hand stretches it out, now he's playing hoops, you know. I mean, what what did you miss here? Matthew 16:4, Jesus responded: An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And a sign will not be given to it except the sign of Jonah three days in the belly of the fish and resurrected. Except the sign of the resurrection. That's the last one you guys are going to get, Jesus says. And he left them and went away. The soul man wants God to prove himself by some kind of fantastic personal experience or appearance. If there is a God, give us a sign. See, Steve Martin said that one time. (laughs) Sorry, this cracks me up. One of his stand-up routines, Steve Martin said, if there is a God, give us a sign. He said, see, I told you there wasn't any. blah, 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 blah. See, because like all of a sudden he couldn't finish the sentence. I thought it was funny. I... You ever put God to the test? You know what? When you do, it's your soul. It's your soul-seeking experience. It's your soul-seeking something tangible, something provable. Show me, Lord. This is what you want me to do. I need you to prove it. I'm not talking about, by the way, spiritual confirmation. That's a completely different thing. I'm talking about testing the Lord. Okay, Lord, if you want me to sign up for children's ministry, make the traffic light turn red now. (laughs) Clearly, I'm not called. That's not an area for me. How do you, well, I, you know, the Lord responded to my test. There's a difference between telling God to prove himself to you and, and humbly asking the Lord to confirm or direct your path. Lord, I don't want to move without you, so help me to hear you. That's, that's, that's not putting God to the test. It is putting God to the test to say, I want some fantastic experience. Faith doesn't look for the fantastic The the spiritual man, the spiritual woman simply has faith to a faithful God. Lord, I'm entrusting myself to you and that means if I see nothing for 30 years, okay, because I know you're faithful. That means if I have no great spiritual experience, all right, but I trust a God who I know is true and I walk with him. Well, feeding the flesh failed, right? And satisfying the soul soul flopped, verse 8 Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So there's a supernatural moment happening there as as the devil is pointing out from this high place all the kingdoms, all the power, all the glory around the earth. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. First of all, were they the devils to give? Answer, yes. Yes. Yes because Adam and Eve gave it up in the garden. They handed rule and authority over to the prince of the power of the air, to the devil who is now the ruler of this world, Jesus called him. So yeah, he could could have handed that over. All he asked for Jesus to do was to fall down and and worship him. (laughs) Come on, Jesus. Just, number three, just compromise the spirit. Compromise the spirit. Do you remember the father's promise to the son? Back in Psalm two, verse seven, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, David writes. He said to me, and this is now Jesus speaking through David. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance to the very ends of the earth. God already told Jesus you're going to rule the world. I'm going to give you the nations as your inheritance. All of this power, all of these nations are going to be under your authority. God made that promise to Jesus. After what? After the Listen, after the day of his begottenness. Today, I have begotten you. Don't misunderstand that. That's not his birth in Bethlehem. The begottenness of Jesus, when we say the only begotten son, and we know this from Acts 13 as Paul explains it, and you can look that up on your own time. Paul explains the begottenness of Jesus where where the full sonship was arrived at was in the resurrection, in the resurrection of Jesus. When we talk about the only begotten son, we're not talking about the fact that he was born in the flesh. Jesus existed before. We're talking about the resurrection by which Jesus claimed his rightful title that God had promised to him. Are you with me? Good. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. That is, there has to be crucifixion first and resurrection. And then in that begottenness, I'll give it all to you. Everything that Satan right now is offering Jesus, what's the temptation? You don't have to do anything. You can just have it now. But the the plan of the Father meant that he had to go through the cross, he had to go through Calvary. The path to the authority of the Son of God went straight through Calvary. He had to die, he had to be buried, he had to be resurrected. Satan right here says, hey, a quick genuflect and you'll be on your way, Jesus. Make you king right now. Just compromise the spirit because God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Just just compromise that. See, at this point, feeding the flesh and satisfying the soul makes spiritual compromise easy. Let me say that one more time. Feeding the flesh Satisfying the soul where temptation is concerned makes compromising the spirit easy. That's when people stop going to church. That's when people stop praying, stop trusting in the Lord because so much feeding of the flesh and so much soul satisfaction makes you weak and ultimately spiritual things begin to be compromised. Jesus' food was the word and the will of the Father. And his mind was on the things of the Spirit. So when this final temptation comes in Matthew 4, he was just done with the devil. Jesus said to him, go, Satan. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only, Deuteronomy 6.13. Jesus said in John 14.13, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. And then he said to his disciples, get up. Let's go from here. And you know where they went? To the garden of Gethsemane. Ask yourself this morning, is my love of the Father greater than the lure of sin? Is my trust in him stronger than the temptations of the evil one? Because ultimately in spiritual warfare, you know what it comes down to more than any other thing? love of God, the love of the Father. My focus, my intentions, my direction, my vision is on him, fixing my eyes on Jesus, author and finisher of faith. That's where the spiritual strength begins to grow and expand, and then, of course, the word of God and praying in the spirit, those offensive weapons for keeping my eyes on Jesus because I love him listening and obeying the father because i love him that's just practical spiritual warfare these are the words elah ha devarim these are the words jesus used in combat and by the way don't go thinking verse 4 and 7 and 10 are some kind of magical mantra or spiritual incantation if i just say those things you got to enter you know memorize those things no these these are representative of the word of God that was on his heart. You don't hear Jesus, as, as Satan is tempting him, go, hang on a second, hang on. Wait, ah, I know there's a verse for this. Some, you know, oh, Deuteronomy 8.3. No. <laughs> he just responds because the word was in his heart. Well, he is the word of God, Jesus Rick, exactly. The word in his heart, he responds book of James, chapter 4, verse 7, Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. That's your flesh. You sinners. Purify your hearts. That's your spirits. You double-minded. That's your soul. Cleanse your hands. Purify your heart. Don't be double-minded. Focused on Jesus. And it was loving obedience of the Son of God, who is also the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, to the Father that carried him through these temptations and trials all the way through his life. And by the way, I love how this ends. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. So God indeed did give his angels charge concerning him to guard him in all His ways, even when his ways were the hard way. Because Jesus' ways were the Father's ways. Isaiah 55, verse 8 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. So this isn't about us walking in our way. It's about us walking in his. And the power to stand against temptation, again, not some physical skill, It's not some mental determination. It's not even really a spiritual secret. It is simply the love of God. Let's stand together. Once again, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6.13, you shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. Father, we come before you as a people who are often weak in the flesh, easily confused in the soul, but hungry to be made alive in the spirit. And Father, I pray that your words will give us the direction that we so seek. I pray, Father, that you will encourage us with these truths. And Spirit of the living God, make us strong as spiritual men and women. We ask, Lord, that you would move in our hearts to follow you fully and to live by your love. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.